Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guest, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we've been hearing of late about a lot of unscrupulous brokers, unscrupulous financial planners. People have gotten taken to the cleaners. They've lost their life savings. They've lost their 401ks. It's been a real tragic time for our economy and for so many people. Not only are we experiencing a downtime in our economy, people are being laid off, but people who have built their whole nest egg, have lost it many times, many places across the country. And we have decided that we're going to be interviewing a certified financial planner, a a woman who I just finished reading her book, Robin S. Davis. And the name of her book is Who's Sitting on Your Nest Egg? Why You Need a Financial Advisor and 10 Easy Tests for Finding the Best One. And I think all of us right now are a little bit leery about financial planners and brokers and any kind of investments. It's a scary time. Let me tell you a little bit about Robin's background because it's terrific. Robin S. Davis is a certified financial planner leveraging 24 years of experience in the business. She's the owner and top advisor of Davis Wealth Enhancement Group in Stewart, Florida. She's a member of the Financial Planning Association, and she's held hundreds of public seminars across the country. As I said, she's also the author of her book entitled Who's Sitting on Your Nest Egg? This was endorsed by the Financial Planning Association, and I found the book very simple to read, very good tips, very easy to follow, and made me really think. The book reveals the importance of working with a competent ethical advisor, which is what we've been scared of as of late. And she offers readers 10 easy tests for finding the best financial planner and the most ethical one. She hopes to aid investors in discerning between the salesmen in the financial industry and those who are really out to help you. You can find out more about her, actually, at her website, 
And one of them is robindaviscfp.com and the other one, daviswealth.com. So thank you for joining us all the way from Florida today. Thank you for having me. Robin, we've been hearing as of late about so many scandals in the financial industry. Why is this current economy a fertile breeding ground for such unscrupulous financial advisors? You know, last year is really a record-breaking year for the stock market, for uh, financial advisors, uh, you know, especially as of late in the, in the news. Right. Uh, between bailouts and mergers and bankruptcies, and it's, it's crazy out there, um, which means even since I wrote the book, people have to be even more careful who they're working, for, working with. And I know it's very scary because I say in the book that you should be working with a financial advisor, and then you hear all this stuff in the news, and, and people are like, there's no way, there's no way I am going to go out and find a financial advisor because I'll probably end up with the wrong one. Right, right. Uh, and, and that's why I wrote the book. There really is a science to it. And first I'd like to touch on the fact why you need to work with a financial advisor, and that's because financial planning is much more complicated than some of these other financial books make it sound. Uh, some books make it say, you know, everything you need to know is in this one volume, you know, to do your own financial planning. But financial planning isn't just picking a mutual fund, picking a bond, picking a stock. It's coordinating that, which I call your investment planning part of your, of your financial puzzle. You also have to coordinate that with your insurance planning, your tax planning, your long-term care planning, your income planning, your retirement planning. These are all different pieces of your financial puzzle, and it's much more complicated than anyone can possibly put into a volume of a, a book out there. So, and my biggest concern is, and I put this in the back of the book, that Murphy's Law says the spouse who's handling the finances is going first. Yeah. And it, it's supposed to be, you know, kind of a funny, but it's not. Uh, we have a lot of widows that come into our office in Florida who say, you know, my husband did everything. And I don't have a clue. And so now I have to go out and find someone to help me. And a lot of these widows get taken advantage of at that point. Exactly. And the same thing happens in divorce. You know, I do a lot of divorce mediation, and there's usually one party who takes care of the finances, and the other one doesn't and hasn't got a clue of what's going on, which can be terrifying when you're going through a divorce. Right. And the one who took care of the finances has the advantage in a divorce. Exactly. I agree and with so, you. yeah. So, and even even if they're both honest, which, you know, in mediation, we keep people on an even keel. So we, we divide the community property in California. But even if you get your community property and you've never held handled finances, you still need to get a financial planner, get somebody to help you as, as to what to do in the future so that your future is secured because you can't depend on the spouse who might have been more financially savvy. Right. Someone has to know what your goals were, what your past experience was. Uh, they have to help you reach those goals. The market changes, your situation changes, especially in a divorce. And if you just rely on the spouse, you're going to get hurt financially. Right. And, you know, I'm one of these baby boomers here. So what special risks are baby boomers facing as they are going to be starting to retire? Well, I'm a baby boomer also. And because financial literacy is not taught in schools, most people learn from their mistakes. 
which includes being taken advantage of by financial salesmen. And I call them salesmen because a financial salesman is someone who sells a particular product to everybody they meet. And they just want to sell as much of it as possible. So we're, since we're a trusting society and we want to believe that everyone in all professions are ethical and honest, uh, where in reality we know a lot of them are not, and we're certainly finding that out recently. Uh, in fact, in my profession, nine out of ten financial professionals are selling a product, not financial planning. Uh, so the lack of financial education, increasing health issues with the elderly, overwhelming information on the Internet, ever-changing complicated income tax laws and estate tax laws make baby boomers, their parents and grandparents, sitting ducks for quack financial advisors. Right. And, you know, people are so busy trying to keep up with their own profession and their families. It's so hard to be an expert at everything. Do you know what I mean? Even though right. people... and, and this topic seems to take the biggest backseat of all of them. <laughs> it does. People figure they have a lot of time. And then you find out all of a sudden retirement's here or somebody became disabled and can't work as long as they thought they could. Uh, and, and all of a sudden the time is gone to save up the money that you're going to need for retirement and to learn what to do with it. Right. And I think it's especially disconcerting now when so many of us in our own financial pro- profiles have lost 30% or more in, in the market. You know, obviously we haven't lost it if we haven't sold, but on paper we've lost a lot of money and our houses have lost a lot of money. So if in California, for example, and I don't know if it's like this in, in Florida, but California, the houses, the, the homes just soared up in price so that people thought they had a lot of equity in their homes and then suddenly they find out that they don't and maybe that was what they thought was their nest egg. And, you know, this is the first time in the 24 years that I've been in this business that I have seen the real estate market, the bond market, and the equity market all crash at the same time. And, and you notice I used the word crash because this was not just a downturn. This was a crash. Yes. And there's nowhere to hide. Right, right. And, you know, we're sitting on the campus of the University of California in Irvine. So our our show airs in uh, Orange County. So we have business people who drive by who are maybe more savvy, who are the baby boomers. And then we actually have the young people who are university students who are going out into the world. And, you know, they're really getting caught in this credit crunch. I know even my kids, I have one in college and one in graduate school, and they both have credit cards. And, of course, even though I tell them, pay off your credit cards, don't go into debt, we're finding that young people who grew up in this society have just, I mean, credit is just out there. They they don't know how to manage their money. Have you found that? Absolutely. And and we are such a buy now and figure out how to pay for it later society. Yeah. And especially with kids in, in our generation, I have young kids myself, uh, they have to have everything today. And it's, especially when they're in college, you know, they all of a sudden start getting the credit card offers. So they take a few, they tell you you should start building up your credit report. And that's one way to do it is to accept a couple of those credit cards. But they were never taught while they were in grade school, you know, how to balance a checkbook, how to read your tax return, um, you know, how to invest money. And I actually suggest to some parents that instead of giving your child a, an allowance when they're old enough, allow them to buy a stock a month, you know, and then sit down with the family and talk about that stock and watch that stock and then buy another one and teach them the difference between paying interest and earning interest. 
Right. And and then when they get to be in their 20s, because most kids, like you just said, get out of high school, get out of college, and they're so far in debt that they, it takes them 10 years to get out of debt before they can actually start saving for retirement. Uh, but if we teach them that when they're teenagers, they would pick up on it. They would want to make money instead of spending money. But that's not the kind of society we have, and there is no formal training while they're in school, while no. they're in grade school. no. How did you get to be so savvy about finances? Uh, 24 years of listening to everybody's stories, believe it or not. (laughs) And every time I think I've heard it all, somebody surprises me. So what kind of training did you have to become a certified financial planner and and understand all this kind of, which I think sometimes is overwhelming for people? Well, it was uh, two years of college for the certified financial planner uh, certification, and most of it was experience, believe it or not, because, again, even in college, there are no courses to teach you what we use on a daily basis, and that's taking care of your money. And right. it's really sad that this country is not going in that direction. And one of the problems is we don't have teachers who know how to teach it. Exactly, exactly. There should be courses. As a matter of fact, the um, the Federal Trade Commission was charged with setting forth some educational materials to have people become more financially savvy. This was really part of the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act that passed in 2003. So the Federal Trade Commission does have some fact sheets. They have a website, ftc.gov, that provides some financial uh, assistance to people. But Look how people have just gotten into trouble with their mortgages. They've upside down in their mortgages. And I, I think it's not just kids. I think it's, you know, most people, if, except for people who are financial planners, are really not that savvy about finances and what to do. We've all gotten, you know, into the credit cards and the plastic is so easy to use. Right, and you get caught up in the excitement, especially with the subprime mortgage situation in this country. You know, a lot of people were excited that, oh, these people are going to give me money and I can buy a bigger house and we can have a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood and we can afford the payments because they're only charging me interest right now. And no one looks ahead, and of course the brokers weren't telling them either at the time, that, by the way, five years from now your payment is going to go from this to this. Right. And, right. and say, can you handle that? And, and what if there was a disability in the family? Or what if somebody lost their job? Or, you know, nobody knew the economy was going to go through what we went through this year and how bad it could actually get. And that the oil prices were going to go over $147 a barrel. And, and you know, that there was going to be, you know, somebody like Mr. Madoff, you know, who was going to take off with $50 billion and, and leave even some of the wealthiest Americans, you know, poor in this right. country. And, Nobody knew this was going to happen, and that's one of the biggest reasons for working with an ethical financial advisor is somebody to keep your feet on the ground and well, make how do you, sure how do you, that you're going to be okay yeah. when you get to retirement and that you're relying on your own money, not yeah. Social Security, not your pension. I actually had one of my clients recently lose his pension because it was with Washington Mutual Bank. Mm. And Washington Mutual, of course, filed bankruptcy, and his deferred compensation plan is subject to creditors. So he lost his pension. Oh, my goodness. And you would never think that something like that could happen. Exactly. I mean, this is something that you rely on when you're young. When you start to work for a company, you find out, okay, I have a pension plan and I have a 401k. I mean, even with Enron, look at all the people that lost everything with Enron. 
Oh, you know? Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, Global Crossing, all of these companies that, you know, where the, the books weren't exactly being kept honestly, and your life is based on what these people are doing in those companies. Right. I think people are starting to question, who can I really trust? And that's what it boils down to. Yeah, because, you know, you think you can trust a company that you've worked for 20 years, or you think that you, I mean, look at all the people who trusted Madoff for so long, right? Right. And, long time. I mean, I mean long 20, time. 20, 30 years. And someone who was, you know, respected by NASDAQ and the SEC and all that stuff. So how do we choose someone that's ethical, and how do we know that they're really ethical? Well, see, that's the thing. Now, he's the perfect example because I've done a lot of research on this since it came out in the news in the last couple of weeks and wondering how these people didn't get a clue. And, you know, who was doing his accounting? Was there? In my business, we have to be audited at least once a year. Well, who were his auditors? You know, did he have any audits done? Um, Did he meet with his clients several times a year? That's one of the tests in my book is how many times a year is that advisor going to sit face-to-face with you and go over the recommendations that they made with you? That makes them accountable. But you know, he was the, bro- he was the that, broker. How long can we keep earning this kind of interest, you yes, know, where the yeah. interest stayed the same for 20, 30 years? That just doesn't happen in this business. You know, I had clients several years ago who I could see that they were making a lot of money. They were my divorcing clients, and they were making a fortune on some investments that they had, 25, 30% a year. And I kept thinking, how can this be? Well, it was a Ponzi scheme. And they ended up, of course, having a, a huge problem. They they were in, I guess they got in later, so they got their money back because the people who first invested paid for the other people. You know, that's how the, how the thing works. But, you know, if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true, isn't it? Absolutely. And last weekend uh, in Palm Beach, we just had another one come out on a much smaller scale than $50 billion. Uh, But it's happening all over the place, mostly in the areas where the retirees seem to move to. So Arizona, uh, Nevada, and Florida are probably the biggest hit areas for Ponzi schemes. Right, right. Places where it's warm, where people move and you know, they've, they've built up their nest egg, and now they want to have something that they can invest and have it grow. And it, it's understandable that they want it to grow for their, for their retirement, and then they find out their retirement is, is completely gone. But how do, we, how do we really do that testing of ethics? I mean, well, you notice how I use the word testing and not asking questions. I'm not a big fan of going to the CFP board website and they have 10 questions you should ask a financial advisor. The problem is somebody who's not honest, like Madoff, right. is, not, is going to answer those questions the way they know you want to hear the answers. Right. So you want to test them where they don't even know they're being tested. And that's where I came up with the 10 tests in my book. Like, for example, the, one of the easiest tests, well, first of all, before I get into those tests, one of the easiest ways to know if somebody's a salesman and not a bona fide financial advisor is they come to your home. Never, ever, ever let anyone come to your home to talk about money because that means they work out of the trunk of their car. They have no overhead. They have no one helping them with the intricacies of the financial planning business. They definitely do not pay attention to your estate planning, your tax planning, your insurance planning. They don't care about all that. All they want to do is go door knocking, 
just like the old Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. Right, right. And they just want to sell as much of it as possible. So that's the first hint. Anybody wants to call you up on the phone and say, I want to come over and show you the greatest things in sliced bread, tell them no. Right. But as far as the tests go, one of the easiest tests when you're sitting in front of a, f- a financial advisor and they're going through their spiel, did they ask you for your tax return? Now, a lot of people think that the tax return is this very confidential form or you know, thing that nobody else should ever see. The problem is your financial advisor needs to use your tax return to make your recommendations. Because mm-hmm. I can look at someone's tax return and I can say, well, gee, I can lower their taxes by making this recommendation. Or I can take some of those dividends off the tax return by making another recommendation. Or I can lower the taxability of their Social Security by making this recommendation. And they can see if you have any tax loss carry forwards. In other words, you have previous tax losses that they could use to make a recommendation to sell something at a profit because they'll offset each other. But all of that information is on the tax return. So, again, you don't want to offer your tax return to the person because you're testing them. Right. So if you went through the whole interview and they never asked about your tax return, never asked you to bring it, number one test, they don't care about that part of your finances. Now, how about working with, let's say they have a CPA, so you as the financial planner work with the CPA, is that something that you do? Yes, I definitely uh, recommend that is one of the tests in the book is what kind of associations does that financial advisor have? You know, are they, do they have people that they can recommend you to as far as your taxes, getting your taxes done and as far as getting your estate planning documents done, uh, like wills and powers of attorneys and health care proxies? Um, or if you do already have your own that you're confident with, are they willing to work with that person so that everybody is on the same page in getting you to reach your goals? Right. And it seems to me that if they're not willing to work with your accountant, isn't that a, a sign that maybe there's something wrong? <laughs> that they don't want to work with your accountant, that they don't want to interface with your accountant? That would that would be a red flag for me. Why don't that you want... Be a- big red flag because the question is, what are they trying to hide? Exactly. If you're a good financial advisor, you want all the CPAs out there to know about you because then they would refer people to you. Exactly. So if someone doesn't want to work with them, that's that's actually a really good clue I should have put in my book. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and even your estate planning attorney, it seems like if you have a whole team, then they're going to look over each other's shoulders too. Right, and it is unbelievable how much we have to work together with these other professionals, especially when a client becomes ill or passes away. All of a sudden, all of these professionals have to have a hand in in what's going on at that time. You know, I I work as the uh, attorney mediator working with both parties. I work with the CPA. I work with the certified financial planner. When we're, you know, dividing up property, we have to make sure that nobody's really going to get hurt tax-wise when we're making some divisions, especially if people have a lot of investments, we want to make sure that it's divided fairly as well. You know, we don't want one person getting all the good stock and one getting all the bad stock. Right. So you're already familiar then with how hard it is to coordinate all those professionals. So if they're already working together and they're all familiar with your situation, it's, a, it's much easier. Right. And I think that the thing is, is that I can ask questions. And if I get worried, I can say to my clients, why isn't your financial planner answering this? Or why isn't your CPA answering this? Or we need 
the help to work as a team. So you know, it amazes me that people don't use their instincts like that. If you don't feel comfortable about something, you need to listen to your body. You need to listen to your, you know, those butterflies you get in your stomach or that queasy feeling you're getting, like something's not going right here. Exactly. And then a lot of people ignore that because they feel embarrassed. Yes. Or they think that their logical mind is saying, well, well, you know, what do I know about this? You know, I'm not the expert. I'm and, working and that's with exactly an expert. exactly why I wrote the book. <laughs> yes. So that people actually know something. I, I relate it to you have to have a suit of armor on when you go to interview a financial advisor. And if you don't have a suit of armor on, they are going to walk circles or talk circles around you. And by knowing these 10 tests, I mean memorizing them, knowing why they're important, not giving a hint to the advisor that you do know these 10 tests, because remember, you're testing them without them knowing they're being tested. Now you have your suit of armor on. Exactly. We're speaking with Robin Davis all the way from Stewart, Florida, and she is the author of her new book, Who's Sitting on Your Nest Egg? Why You Need a Financial Advisor and 10 Easy Tests for Finding the Best One. I love this. You have this gold egg sitting in a nest. It's so cute. It's a great cover. I love it. Let me ask you, let's kind of go through these 10, even though, I mean, I'll give people, we're not going to be able to do it as in, in much depth as in your book, but let's kind of go over the test. The first test was the tax return. So let's go to the second test. What is the second test that we the need? The financial to physical is the second test. And I kind of relate that to going to a doctor's office. You know, when you go to a brand new doctor and they hand you that clipboard and it has all those awful forms that you have to fill out. Right. Everything about your body and your past history with, with medical issues, you have to put on those forms because they have to know everything about you in order to make the right prescription for your current ailment. Right. Otherwise, they could be prescribing the wrong thing. Right. And financial planning is exactly the same way. If that financial advisor doesn't ask every little thing about your finances, your taxes, your estate planning, your past history, your future goals, then they don't care about that stuff. All they care about is how much money do you have to invest. Right. And so they have to ask you all those personal questions. Do not get offended if you actually should get happy if they're asking you all those questions because they really want to make the right recommendation. You know, Robin, there's another side to that that's scary, though. In, in this day and age, if you haven't really found out a lot about your financial planner, people are afraid to share sensitive information because of the tremendous amount of identity theft. And I'm that's one of my expertise is, you know, the more you tell someone, the more they have the ability to steal your identity and even if your financial planner is very, very ethical, the questions that I want to add to what you need to ask is, how are you going to protect this information? If you're going to gather this information from me, are you going to put it into your computer? Is it going to be encrypted? Are you going to have anybody else have access to it? And what if what if your computer is stolen and you have had, you know, you don't have it encrypted? Those kinds of information, when we've heard about, you know, literally millions and millions of data breaches that have occurred, we're worried about that. So what do you do about that? You know, that's an interesting question because it is an issue today and it's really a shame. Uh, but I've had people come into the office with their existing uh, financial statements, uh, bank statements, uh, investment statements, 
so on and so forth, and they'll have blocked off, you know, or blacked out their Social Security numbers and their account numbers. Right, right. Now, now you really have to give your name. Uh, You don't have to give your birth date at that time until you feel more comfortable. But again, without all of that personal information, I can't even tell if I can help you or not. I don't want to make recommendations that are going to duplicate something that you already have. Uh, So... There are two sides of the coin to right, that, but there right. are ways that you can hide that information, like make up your own you know, summary of what you have without your personal information on it, just your investments. And the other side is, is that financial planners have to be savvy enough now with the technology so that they do encrypt. I know I have a financial planner, and he has learned from me that Anytime he sends me anything by email, if an attachment, he never puts anything confidential in an email, but every time he sends me something, it's password protected, and I know the password only by him calling me, and we now have a password for me, but I do not want anything sent to me unless it's password protected. It's even safer if it's password protected than if he faxes it to me, because there's a lot of different things I have to sign if we're moving things around, you know, now... uh, you know, I have to sign and my social security number is on there and it has to be my complete social security number so that the asset management people will believe it's me, you know? <laughs> so. Right, right. And I agree with you. Forms definitely with that personal information should not be uh, emailed back and forth or even faxed because you never know if you're going to the right fax machine. Uh, that kind of stuff should really be done in person or through the mail. You know, you have the wonderful, you know, overnight deliveries and and you can make sure that the information got to you the next day. Right, right. Uh, And and making sure that that, you be more careful today. Yeah. And the financial planners and the accountants and the attorneys all need to be making sure that nobody else has access to that information that unless that person is had background checks and you have an audit trail. So, you know, who has access even to the physical files. Because the physical, you know, you'd have somebody who breaks into your office and and steals files if they're not in locked cabinets. So, you know, that's the side of me that's the the privacy attorney. So, you know, it's it's just, I think now with so much identity theft, we're talking about 10 million new victims a year, that people, of course, need to share this information with with their financial planner and their accountant. But they also need to know that their financial planner and their accountant and their attorneys and anyone else who has access is really doing everything they can to protect it or they're going to be scared to death to provide it. Yes, and and that's another thing that keeps people from going out and finding a financial advisor because they're afraid of being in front of the wrong one who's going to use that information in, in a bad way. Right. So let's say that somebody's listening in and they don't have a financial advisor. They Let's say they work for a big company and they had everything invested with the company. They had their 401k, they had their savings plan, they have their pension plan, and they never really found a need for a financial planner. And now they're going to roll over the 401k, they're going to get their pension plan, they're going to get, they have some other monies that they got, some inheritance. How What are the steps that someone should take to find a good, reputable, ethical financial planner? Well, one of the first things you can do, and I'm sure they have a lot of these going on in California as well as Florida, is there are a lot of public seminars. Uh, You might get these free lunch offers in the mail or see them in the newspaper. It's not a bad thing to go to those. But again, you should know the 10 tests and who's sitting on your nest egg. In order to be able to sit there at that seminar and say, okay, this person's just a salesman, 
because he didn't pass any of these tests. He didn't talk about any of these topics, and I'm going on to the next seminar. Right. So at least that you have one clue as to how to eliminate people holding seminars because a lot of salesmen hold set seminars because they're trying to sell a product. Right. Also, if it's a product seminar, that's your first clue they're a salesman. If it's a seminar that's just teaching you about investing, about your estate planning, about how to coordinate this stuff, and it's more basic information like you would learn in school, then you can start being a little bit more confident that they're not trying to sell you something right there. Right. Um, another thing is, of course, you can ask friends, you can ask uh, work associates who they use. That still doesn't mean that your friend or your associate knows how to test their existing advisor, right. but at least that you have someone to start with. You can go in and have an interview with them, and you can start using the 10 tests to see if, if they pass. Um, so let's go. I, I, we talked about the first test, which was the tax return, then the financial, physical. Let's get to the third test about estate planning and account, account tilting. Titling. Til yes. Titling, I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> it's very interesting that a lot of people also don't think that a financial advisor should know how to title your accounts and especially name beneficiaries on your life insurance policies, your IRAs and retirement plans, and your annuities. Right, like because if you have a living... beneficiaries, how you name those beneficiaries is so important in avoiding probate right? and, you know, keeping the attorneys out of your estate when you pass away right? Uh, and passing these assets in a, in a quicker way to your heirs. Yes, because so if, if you have a living trust and you don't put the beneficiary as your living trust, you've got some problems because now it's outside of your trust. Right. It's outside the trust. And, and I, I find issue with some of the estate planning attorneys out there that they have no problem doing a trust for you, but a lot of them don't follow up with getting your accounts titled in the name of your trust. So if you have a financial advisor that's sitting down and looking at your account statements and they're saying, well, gee, you guys have a trust, but you have this statement that is in your name right. and your spouse's name. How come it's not in the name of the trust? If they bring that stuff up, you can be pretty confident that that they are a bona fide financial advisor because, again, salesmen don't care how your accounts are titled. They don't care how your money is going to your heirs. They don't care what the beneficiary is on your IRA or your life insurance. Right. So let's get to the fifth test, accountability. Accountability is like I, I mentioned with uh, the Madoff situation is, did this guy ever meet with his clients or did they just take him based on the statements that they sent him? Well, but you know what I read them. in the paper? I read that he, when people would ask him questions, he would just say, just trust me. Look, I know what I'm doing. Just trust me. And he, he did the investing. He did, he was the broker and the investor and the financial planner. He did everything. Well, <laughs> it well, was one-stop shopping. Yeah. <laughs> just trust me is not accountability. Right. right. <laughs> and that should be another clue. If they say that, find another financial advisor. Because if there is no course that people can take in order to learn the finances and, and what they need to know in order to have a relationship with a financial advisor, then they need the financial advisor teaching them. And as far as I'm concerned, the more educated my clients are, the better clients they are for me. And right. it makes my job easier. So if, if I meet with my clients, and I meet with all of my clients at least four times a year, um, I'm not afraid to get in front of my clients when the market's down, really happy to get in front of them when the market's up, Right. But they're constantly, com I'm constantly comparing their investments to what's going on with the market. You know, why is their investment doing this when the market's doing that? Uh, the investment is still on track for meeting their goals that, they, that we set in the beginning. 
you need to hear this stuff from them, not trust me. Right. And also, you know, your clients' goals change as they get older. I notice that as I'm getting older, I'm getting more conservative and, right. and I'm more and worried. Yeah. You know, I don't want such risky stuff. I want less risky. When my, you know, when I was younger and I thought I had a long time for things to grow, then I could say, okay, I may win big this year. And yeah, I know I could lose big the next year, but over overall, it's going to be a long, I'm looking at long-term planning where short-term planning, you're going to get more conservative because you're saying, oh my goodness, I, I, I may want to retire in five years. Well, you know, this is the second time we've been through this kind of market in the last nine years. Yeah. Now, in 2000, the tech bubble, you know, burst. Right. And within that three-year period from 2000 to 2002, the average losses across the United States was 50%. I mean, the Fidelity Magellan account, which was the biggest mutual fund in the country, was down 50% at the end of that three-year downturn. So now you go out nine years, and here we are going through it again. So basically, people haven't made any money in the last nine years. They started right, out you right. know, in a rotten market. They ended in a rotten market. So I think the whole market is changing. I think the buy and hold strategy is out the window. Yeah. I call that buy and hope. Yeah, hope buy and you're hope. holding the right thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's scary. So things have to change more in your portfolio because the market's changing. It's much more volatile. As you get older, like you said, you should get more conservative. Uh, there are a lot of conservative investments out there that can still, you know, earn money more than what you can get in the bank and, and meet the income needs that you're going to have once you retire. Right. We're speaking with Robin Davis, and she is the owner of Davis Wealth Management, and she is the author of Who's Sitting on Your Nest Egg, Why You Need a Financial Advisor, and 10 Easy Tests for Finding the Right One. Great book. So let's get back to these tests. Let's see, that we just did the... We're on number six. We're on number six, about staff and associates. Let's talk about that. Yes, make sure your financial advisor has a staff. And the staff should be uh, coordinated with the amount of clients that they have. The more clients you have, the more staff you should have. Because people constantly need something done. And if, if my clients expected me to get them a tax form or a copy of a statement or do the filing or answering the phones, I wouldn't have time to watch their investments. So the clients want the financial advisor just watching their investments, keeping an eye on the market, researching all the products out there and the new strategies that come out because of these kinds of markets. And they should have a staff doing everything else. I tell people you'd have a whole new respect for what we do if you just spend a week in our office and watch the staff, you know, running around doing everything that they can for clients. Yes. And again, I'm going to go back to that caveat, which is, if, you know, the staff is going to have access to sensitive documents, so make sure that you do a background check on all of your staff people and limit access so that they don't have fun with somebody else's social security number. I, I have had stories of people who found out that in unscrupulous employees in accounting offices have taken the identity or sold the identity of the clients. So again, it gets back to, yes, that's that's important to have a staff, and it's important to have a staff that you also can trust. So, And actually, this goes back to the Madoff uh, situation this month, that Mr. Madoff was his own broker-dealer. Yes. And, and a broker-dealer is, is the person that does all the clearing and their own due diligence and, and approves the products that are sold you know, by the representatives. Well, if he's his own broker-dealer... He has no 
uh, supervisory jurisdiction. You know, there's no one supervising him. So you really want to look for a financial advisor that has a separate broker-dealer because they're not allowed to sell anything that's not already pre-approved and gone through the whole due diligence process by their broker-dealer. They have less chance of getting in trouble that way. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. We recently interviewed somebody, um, uh, Bruce Fleet, who wrote a book called Demystifying Wall Street, and he used to be on Wall Street. And he feels that the SEC does really nothing. <laughs> and it's interesting because... Um, well, now we know. <laughs> we know. I was just going to say, and, and we had Christopher Cox, who is actually from Newport Beach, California, which is right next door to where we are here. You know, he was, you know, the head of the SEC under the Bush administration. And, you know, (laughs) I read in the paper recently that he said that on that whole Madoff thing that he had heard rumors that people were concerned, but no one looked into it. Right. And and that's why people, that's why in uh, my test number five, you're the one who has to make your advisor accountable because the regulatory agencies out there that are supposed to uh, safeguard the, you know, your money or, or be like a little angel watching over what these professionals are doing uh, are not doing their job. And, and we found that out the hard way because the, the Ponzi scheme that's the most popular prior to Madoff, uh, the person just went to jail uh, last April, and that was a $400 million Ponzi scheme. That wasn't even close to what happened with Madoff. Right. I can't even believe the size of this one. I know. And it's almost like with the SEC and and all of the craziness, it's almost like the fox is minding the hen house. It just, to me, I think that, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we need to have more uh, regulation? Do we need to have stronger laws? Do we need to have... They, They need to have more employees so that they can regulate the, the, um, the massive amount of financial advisors or all of the people hanging out a sign saying, I'm a financial planner, uh, and, and be able to regulate them. Um, I, I think Madoff must have said to the SEC, uh, don't worry, everything's fine, just like he says to his clients. <laughs> right, right. And they believed <laughs> they him because what you look at, I mean, he, for so many years, he was so well-respected, right? I right. Mean, and um, so it's just... This is what we tell people. If you've had somebody who's worked for you for a long time and you really trusted them and you keep giving them opportunities um, to to do things that they shouldn't necessarily do without anybody looking over their shoulder, you're giving them free reign. And maybe that's one of the problems, that people will take advantage if they don't have anybody looking over their shoulders. Well, the problem is uh, Madoff was a member of the NASDAQ Stock Markets Board of Governors. Uh, its executive committee. He served as chairman of its trading committee. So just because of his his position, they just took him at his word that everything was legal and above board. And, and this is why it goes right back to the simplest test in that book that would have saved a lot of these people uh, that money that they lost. Yes, yes. Okay, so let's get to the next test, which is fees versus commission. That's always a big topic. Should we pay fees or should we pay commissions? And, again, going back to the salesmen in our business and 9 out of 10 financial advisors being salesmen, most products that salesmen sell are high-commission products. So, But it doesn't mean that there aren't commission products out there that are not good for certain parts of your portfolio. So 
when somebody says to me, should I use a fee-only advisor or should I use a commission-only advisor, I tell them neither. Because if you see the word only or if they tell you they are only this type of advisor or only that type of advisor, the word only belongs in the same category with always and never. You should never use it because that means they can only invest your money one way. And if your situation doesn't warrant that, they're going to convince you that it does because that's the only way they're going to get your business. So I recommend that people use an advisor that's both. And there are a lot of advisors out there that use commission products for a certain part of your portfolio and they use fee-based products for another part of your portfolio because it's warranted and they should tell you and explain to you why it's warranted. And something I'd like to, to tell your audience is that as far as annuities go, because they seem to be the biggest commission-based products out there that the country has, a, has an issue with, there are what's called no-load annuities out there. And if somebody ever recommends an annuity to you, just ask them if the same company has one that has no penalties on it. So why don't you explain, because a, a lot of people don't really understand what annuities are, especially as if we're speaking you know, even though we have a wonderful business school here at the University of California, Irvine, there are a lot of people that really don't understand all these different products. I think they understand life insurance, whole life versus term. I think that they understand bonds versus stock. But I, I don't think they really understand annuity. Could you explain to them what you mean by that? Well, an annuity is an investment issued by an insurance company. And you can think of it this way. You insure your car in case you lose your car. You insure your house in case your house burns to the ground. You insure your life in case something happens to you while you're still working and your spouse and your children will be okay. Why would you not want to insure your money in in the market? And the only investment out there that can do that is an annuity because it's issued through an insurance company. Because insurance companies are the only companies that can guarantee to, to replace something if it's missing. Right. Uh, however, people an annuity have been is, pretty is, scared is, is an investment, just like yeah. any other investment, and it has a tax-deferred wraparound. And it, it's almost, you can almost think of them like an IRA. You can put, the IRS allows you to put as much money as you want into them, and you don't have to pay taxes on it until you make a withdrawal. Right. And they still carry the same penalties as an IRA. If you take the money out before you're 59 and a half, there'll be a 10% penalty, uh, because if the IRS is letting you tax-defer the money, they're going to put rules on it just like the IRA. Right, right. So it's a vehicle that could fit nicely in a certain part of certain people's portfolios, but a salesman will sell annuities to everyone they meet, not dissecting your portfolio and dissecting your financial plan and saying, okay, annuities work well over in this part of your portfolio, but not over in this part of your portfolio. Right. So let's look at the next test, which is test number uh, eight, which is, product costs, and penalties. Yes, if the financial advisor refuses to talk about fees and penalties, there's an issue because there are a lot of products sold out there where there is no regulation, going back to that regulation, uh, where there's no regulation on them having to tell you about penalties. So So give us an example. Well, for example, there's an annuity out there called an equity index annuity, and it locks people in. It has a very long-term penalty on some of these. You know, some can be as long as 15 or 20 years. They have very high penalties on them, which can be as much as 15, 20% to get out of it in the first few years. 
Uh, and the only securities, li- actually, you don't need a securities license to sell them. All you need is a life insurance license. And there's not enough regulation in each state because each state has their own insurance regulation. Uh, each state has to approve which annuity products are sold within that state. And you only requ- the only thing required is a life insurance license, which is like a very easy test to pass. Hmm. So are are these annuities similar to a life insurance policy, or do, are are they including that? Are some of those annuities including a life insurance component? Uh, some of them do because they have what's called a death benefit. But unlike a life insurance policy where you pay a small premium and you get a big death benefit, they're only guaranteeing what you put into the contract. So if you put a hundred thousand into the contract. The market goes down, and you pass away. You're going to your spouse or your beneficiaries are going to get a hundred thousand back out of the contract. So it's not exactly like a life insurance policy. You know, they're just giving them. They're guaranteeing the amount of money that you're investing with them. Right. We're speaking, and right? they are very complicated. Yeah, so complicated. yeah. That's why the advisor has to explain it to you, explain exactly how it works and why it fits into your situation. Right. So we're speaking with Robin Davis, who is a certified financial planner, and she's the author of Who's Sitting on Your Nest Egg, Why You Need a Financial Advisor, and 10 Easy Tests for Finding the Best One. And we're going through the uh, an overview of each of the 10 tests, and each one is a chapter, which explains a lot more. So now we're on ch- number nine, references. This We kind of talked about this before. You want to get references for these uh, for choosing an ethical financial planner, right? Yes, and I have an issue with asking for references also because if you ask anyone for references, you know that they are going to give you their top 10 clients. Right, and or their cousins. They know that if you call those clients, <laughs> those clients are going to tell you you're the most wonderful person on earth. Right, right. Um, I have an issue with that, and, and I just came up with a couple of ways how you can go around that and get your own references. I mean, we're not allowed to have someone come into the office and go through the files and say, okay, I want to talk to this person because of confidentiality. Right, and privacy, sure. Right. And so let's just say you're sitting in the, in the office waiting to have your first interview with this financial advisor, and there's somebody else sitting there. Feel free to ask that other person sitting there, how long have you been with this you know, advisor? Are you happy with them? You know, so on and so forth. Um, we actually had a client walk out of our office last week and stopped one of our other clients coming into the office out in the parking lot. <laughs> Right. Because right. they read the book oh. and asked them, you know, because it's, it's a, you know, it's a legit reference. It wasn't someone that was given to you because the advisor knows how they're going to respond to your phone call. Right. And also they should go and, and look online and see if there are any complaints against that. You know, for example, with the State Bar of California, if there's any complaints against a California attorney, you can look up and see. Right you can, on the you know, another good way is to ask the employees. Again, while you're sitting there, you know, you have employees walking back and forth if they have employees, and say, you know, how long have you been with this advisor? Right. A really good advisor will have a low turnover staff. Exactly. And if they're they happy. they take care of their employees <laughs> the same way they take care of their clients. Right. And the last one is qualifications and experience. And how do you check that out? What if somebody makes up a lie? Um. It's it's really hard to to lie unless someone doesn't check on their credentials. 
So when you see someone with the CFP designation after their name, you can certainly go to the CFP website. You can look up their name. They'll say, yes, this person's okay. They don't have any complaints against them. Uh, it's the other designations that are much more complicated. And there's a, there's a chapter in the beginning of the book that I call Alphabet Soup because there are so many designations out there that somebody could be using. It would, it would confuse you. Uh, there are a couple, actually, that have been that advisors are not allowed to use anymore because the SEC is not allowing them to use it. One of them is a Certified Senior Advisor, a CSA, the very popular one these days. And what it requires is the advisor going to a two-day course. At the end of the two days, they can use CSA after their name. Ah. So, you know, that that's certainly would not make me confident that they had the experience and they had to go through the training and they have to do this uh, certification credits every year to keep their certification. Uh, but, of course, if someone didn't know that CSA, especially the seniors, again, in those states where most seniors move to, uh, they think that this person knows more than another advisor because they're a senior advisor. Right. It's just not true. Right. Lloyd says we don't have a lot of time. We've, I'm sure we could go on for hours, but since we're on the airways at the University of California, Irvine, and there are students that may be listening in too, what advice do you have for college students? You know, we've been talking about retirees, but college students think that they have their whole life ahead of them. What is your advice for them? My advice to them is really easy. Stay out of debt, save as much money as possible as soon as you get a job, uh, learn about different investments in the industry. You know, don't get too aggressive in the beginning either, just like you shouldn't get too aggressive at the end. You know, when you start building up, you know, a certain nest egg, then you can get a little bit more aggressive with a certain percentage of your portfolio. Uh, but definitely stay away from the credit cards, stay out of debt, and save as much as possible for as long as possible. Do not rely on Social Security and do not rely on a pension when you retire. And when you're talking about save, are you talking about saving in money market right now with this kind of crazy market that we're having? Are you talking about saving with investments? What kind of, basically, for, for college students, what are you thinking about well, saving? Well, since, since they're so young, it depends on what the goal is for the money. If they're saving up to buy a house in five years, you want to be more conservative with that money than if they're saving for 40 years later for retirement. If they're saving for retirement, they can afford to be a little more aggressive. Actually, they can afford to be a lot more aggressive because your dollar cost averaging, if you're saving over time and going into the market sometimes when it's high, sometimes when it's low, it's actually the infallible way to invest in this industry. Uh, but something that if you have a goal that you're saving for that's coming up within the next five years, then you probably do not want to put it into the stock market. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us, Robin Davis. You're terrific. And your book, Who's Sitting on Your Nest Egg? Why You Need a Financial Advisor and 10 Easy Tests for Finding the Best One. That's really helpful. I think this is a great uh, user-friendly, consumer-friendly book. And I thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It was fun. Okay. And we'll give us your website again, which one you want us to go to to, to learn more about what you do. It's uh, Robin Davis, CFP.com or DavisWealth.com. Well, terrific. Thank you very much. Thank and, you so much. All right. Good evening. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host. 
Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived, archived interviews, and write us an email about what you want to know about in privacy in the information age. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we are thrilled to bring back Chuck Williams, who is the Reserve Lieutenant with the Orange County Sheriff's Department's Search and Rescue Unit. He's been with the department for 14 years, and in his real-life profession, he is Chief Operating Officer of North Shore Management, which is a crisis management company for the healthcare industry. Thank you again for coming back to join us. It's my pleasure, Mari. Well, last week we talked about what you do as Lieutenant of the Search and Rescue Division. You are also an expert dog trainer for that unit as well. Tell us about the rescue and cadaver dogs and what kinds of dogs you use in their training. Well, Mari, we have two different types. One is a trailing dog, and typically we use bloodhounds for that mission. Bloodhounds are scent-specific trailers, so we give them a scent article from a specific individual, and they will trail that specific individual wherever they went. And it's, it's just an amazing task that those dogs can, uh, can execute. The air scent dogs, which Charlie is a human remains detection dog. She's also what we call a wilderness air scent dog. She does air scenting, which is she doesn't follow specific scent, but she follows, for instance, anyone who's out in the wilderness. She will find them and alert and come and tell me. With the cadaver material, she does what we call a passive alert, which is where she lies down or sits with her nose towards the greatest source of that scent. So how do you do that training? That is a, it's a long process. All scent dogs are, are trained the same way. We start with boxes with the scent that we're exploring, I use various forms of decomposition, blood products, bandages, can be soil that's been under a decomposing body. And she is trained that that's the game. That's what we're looking for. And by we start with scent boxes, then we go out into the field, and ultimately um, she knows that's what we're looking for when I give her the correct command. Can you give us some examples of how you've used the dogs and what they've been able to do? The Bloodhound team has numerous finds, both from missing children's to missing Alzheimer's patients to fleeing felons who have evaded the police by jumping out of a car and running away. We're able to get a scent article off that seat, trail the person, and hopefully facilitate the arrest. With Charlie, Charlie has two two skeletal remain finds where we were tasked uh, to go out and do a search. Both times she found skeletonized remains where we were able to locate people who had been missing for uh, significant periods of time and, and, if you will, close that chapter for that family. That is wonderful. Why don't you give your website again, and then we want to thank you for joining us. The website for the Search and Rescue Unit is www 
OCSD-SRRU.org, and that stands for Orange County Sheriff's Department Search and Rescue Reserve Unit.org. Well, Lieutenant Chuck Williams, we sure appreciate all the great work you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 